and welcome once again here to worship together as the people of God. We're located, of course, not just in this building, but in various homes in Bigger and Blackmount, and even in Kent in England, in the U.S., and in the Netherlands. We're here, we who are here in the building are probably dressed in our Sunday best, but other folks at home are probably in their pajamas, quite rightly, I would be too. And one person a few weeks ago let it slip that they watched the service from the bathtub. But no matter how we are clothed physically, we come to receive from God a mantle of praise, the scripture says. And we come to lift our voices in thanksgiving for all that God is and all that he has done for us. We come expecting God to do great things even in the face of what we are up against in terms of personal challenges and what we face together in this continuing pandemic. We listen to the praise of God, the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, and this is sung by Greg and Anya Davis. Join in the singing if you're at home, and if you're here, please stand, and you can move about to the music. Crown him with many crowns, our first hymn. sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen, and thanks be to God. We're seven weeks into our journey through Peter's letter to his friends in Asia Minor. And we're only just coming to the practical instructions that Peter wants to give to his friends, these friends who are in a very difficult situation. 
All the verses that have gone before are the very important groundwork to lay firmly down before the practical application can even be suggested. This morning we dive into the very tricky subject of the Christian's relationship with those in power and the issue of slavery that we find in Peter's text here. Let's pray as we grapple with this text. Lord God, there are some tough things in your word. You don't want us to just blindly follow, and you don't want us to write them off. Your call is for us to engage with your word. This morning, Lord, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to empower us to do just that. Engage with this word that it might change us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's vital that when we look at the New Testament and the letters in the New Testament, that we bear in mind that This letter is not primarily written to us, but it's written to other people in a place and time that in a lot of ways is very different from our place and time. And as we grapple with that very different place and time, as as much as we are able, there's a lot of things that we don't understand about their place and time. But as we grapple with it, and understand the message within its historical context, then the letter is able to speak to us and to speak powerfully to us in our place and time, despite all the differences. So let's remind ourselves of the context of this letter. This letter is written by Peter, Peter, the poor fisherman, become an unlikely apostle. Peter is writing from Rome, where in the not-too-distant future, Peter will be killed for his faith. This letter and the advice in it are not coming from a powerful religious leader or political leader. And the people that Peter is writing to, too, in the world's eyes, are not powerful movers and shakers. Peter understands the predicament that his friends are in because in many ways, he is in the same situation as well. They are both poor and dispossessed, and many of them were slaves. That background makes all the difference to our understanding of the letter and particularly the portion that we're looking at this morning. Unlike us here in Bigger Today, Peter and his friends did not live in a democratic society where they were afforded rights at all. Peter and his friends lived in the tyrannical Roman Empire where the vast majority of people were not citizens 
and upwards of 40% of the population were slaves. Though it's never right for one human being to own another, slavery in the ancient world was very different to what we know of transatlantic slavery from our more recent past. Slavery in the ancient world was not based on skin color or ethnicity. Anyone could be a slave. Slavery was an equal opportunity exploiter. And sometimes in the ancient world, slaves were better off economically than free people. Some slaves were physicians and others were accountants. Some, some slaves were more highly educated than their masters. And they could earn an extra living by hiring themselves out to read and write and teach. Indeed, some slaves were able to buy their freedom or to have it granted by a benign master or from some good deed they performed. But for the vast majority of slaves in the ancient world, life was hard. They did manual labor in the fields and in the mines. And they were exploited and abused both physically and sexually. But into this situation comes the Christian gospel. And what does it teach? It teaches according to Paul in Galatians. Can we go on to the next slide? My clicker doesn't seem to be working. Oh, there's a slide before that, I believe. No, it's not showing up. Okay. What Paul says in Galatians is there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul, in his letter to Philemon, in that book of Philemon, urges a slave owner named Philemon, to regard a slave who has run away from Philemon to Paul, he urges him to see him as a brother. So whereas the Bible never explicitly comes out against the institution of slavery in the ancient world, or for the overthrow of tyrannical government, the Bible does stand in contradiction to these things. Certainly when the end of the slave trade was being debated in Britain and the United States, there were those who used the Bible and passages like we find here in 1 Peter to legitimize the institution of slavery. There were far more people, however, like Wilberforce and John Newton who were arguing also from the Bible that slavery was wrong. And in the end, it was Wilberforce and Newton's interpretations of passages like this here in 1 Peter that was far more compelling and closer to a correct interpretation of Scripture. 
It's been argued by historians like Tom Holland that the Christian gospel is the major factor that spelled the end of the institution of slavery. It took a long time. And it can be argued that it still hasn't been eradicated. That book by Tom Holland called Dominion has just come out. It's not in the paperback edition yet. It will be in March, and I highly recommend it. He looks back at our history, and he sees the influence of Christianity. This is someone who's speaking from a historical point of view. He is not a Christian, but his findings are just fascinating. So if our passage in 1 Peter is not legitimizing tyranny and slavery, what is it doing? What is Peter saying here? How does Peter suggest his friends live as Christians in a world that they inhabit? And what relevance does it have to us here in our day? Peter begins in verse 13. Yeah, you can put that slide up. Begins in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors. And then down in verse 18, he says to slaves, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. And if that isn't bad enough, over in chapter 3, Peter continues, wives, in the same way, Submit yourselves to your own husbands. And you can see how tyrants, racist, and misogynist can and have had a field day with what Peter is saying here in his letter. But I would contend a tyrannical, racist, misogynist interpretation of this text is a misinterpretation. And actually, given the context of this text in the letter and in his time and place, Peter is being anti-tyrannical, anti-racist, and anti-misogynist. Some New Testament scholars actually say that what Peter is advocating here is a kind of Christian anarchy. Far from advocating quietism, that acquiescing to the powers that be, Peter is being downright subversive. At at face value, it is really hard for us to see that. But let's dig a little deeper into what Peter says. First of all, look at what Peter says in verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. He tells his people, both those who are free and those who are slaves, to live as free people. Peter's understanding, as we saw last week, is that he and his friends are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, people who have received God's mercy with a purpose of 
declaring God's praise to the world, their status is the free people of God. And no one and no situation can take that away from them. But Peter also says in the same verse that his people, both those living as slaves and those who are free, are to consider themselves slaves to God. So over and above any status given to them through their relationship with the emperor or governors or masters, husbands or fathers, they belong in an intimate relationship and are responsible to the highest authority who is God. And even more radical, Peter following the teaching of Jesus, believed that the authorities, even the emperor and the governors, were responsible to God for their behavior and would, in the end, answer for any abuse of power on their part. God would be the judge. This is a radically different understanding to how things worked in Peter's day. Religion in the Roman world was civil religion. Religion was an institution that was there to make people subservient to the state and to the status quo. Religion was there to consolidate and underwrite the power structures in society. As a slave, if your master had a devotion to one of the many gods in the Roman pantheon, you were expected to worship that god too. As a wife, if you were, you were expected to worship whatever gods your husband worshipped. And everyone, everyone was required to put Caesar first above all religion and above all religious devotion. Christian understanding expressed by Peter here is a radical departure from that way of seeing things. It turns things upside down and inside out. The God revealed in the crucified Christ was supreme for Peter, even over the supreme emperor. To us, this might not appear so radical, but it is precisely this radically different perspective on things that got so many Christians in the ancient world hung on crosses and sent to the lions. And it was, it can be argued, what finally put an end to the Roman Empire. Peter's perspective gives us freedom like nothing else can. Peter's perspective enables us to freely serve in a way that no fear and no intimidation is able to do. Peter is not advocating that his friends just put up with oppression and hardship. In Peter's mind, God wants to bring real and lasting change not just to their lives, but to the whole cosmos. Our freedom in Christ 
helps us to be a part of what God is doing to liberate the whole world. Our freedom allows us to behave in a way that changes people's hearts. Submit, Peter says, for the Lord's sake. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands that they might be won over. Not just defeated, but won over. The strategy is subversive. It doesn't just change things on the outside, but it flips everything on its head and it transforms hearts. As we said last week, the way of Christ, according to Peter, is to not write off the rest of the world and retreat. Nor is it to fight the same way that the world fights. The way of Christ, rather, is to love the world and to do everything we can to bring the world radical, revolutionary blessing. That may well come through our suffering in one way or another in the here and now. But ultimately, as we trust in God, his ways will prevail. How can Peter be so confident? Where does Peter get this radical, subversive strategy? Well, the answer is Jesus. In verse 21 to 24, Peter holds up Jesus as the supreme example of how to live in a world that is misguided and often brutal. Jesus, Peter says, entrusted himself to God. The Christian religion is not just another religion or spirituality to be tacked onto our worldview to make things more tolerable or to make us feel better. The Christian religion is what gives us radical hope even in the darkest of days. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is, in Peter's words, what brings the whole world healing. It brings healing in even in the face of tyrannical systems that use torture and crosses to achieve their aim. We, in our time and place, are not faced with Roman emperors and their governors, but we are faced with this virus that is something just as tyrannical. It can disable us with fear and despair. Might we, like our friends so long ago, find courage and radical hope in the same place that they found it? For our Christ is their Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is mighty to save. In him we can entrust our lives. 
and we can entrust the lives of those we love and the world in which we live. May God help us to have that radical faith even today. Amen. A picture here. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, at the Dean Gallery in uh, Edinburgh, this is an installation. And uh, it, it is uh, created by a man named Nathan Coley. There will be no miracles here. It's a quote from the king in France in the 1700s, one of the Louis, I guess, um, who thought that he ruled the world. And uh, there were miracles happening in a village that, uh, one of his, where one of his estates was located. Uh, and uh, people were flocking to this place to receive miracles of healing but they were trampling over his gardens. So he declared that there would be no miracles here. It's, I think that's just uh, highlights for me what the problem is with those who think that they are powerful in our world and control things. There is a God in heaven who makes miracles happen despite what has been dictated by sovereigns and emperors. There is so much in First Peter that we could look at, and I'm sure you've got loads and loads of questions when you read through it. Um, this, this section that we're looking at today, it begins, as, as uh, Caroline read, from verse 13. But then we get a chapter break in, in chapter 3, and it seems that he's going on to something else. And in my Bible, it's got a heading and it says wives and husbands. But actually, from verse 13 through to verse 7 in chapter 3, it's all one section. And, and we do the text a disservice by splitting it up. In this passage Peter is talking to people who are on one side of power and not on the other, by and large. So he's talking to those who are oppressed, the, the slaves, those Christians who are a minority, women in situations where their husbands were, were pagans, women in a society where they were offered no rights whatsoever. Slaves actually had more rights than women. If a woman was free, she wasn't able to be a citizen. Then he comes down to verse 7. And Peter addresses people with power. He addresses husbands, Christian husbands. People who are on the other side of the power dynamic. And I think... For us, we need to find ourselves there. In our world, we are people who are privileged just by virtue of where we are born. We are people who have power, the power to oppress others. There are people in relationship with us who are vulnerable. And Peter says here, husbands... Let me read it. 
Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner, or some of the old translations, as the weaker sex. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now he says that they are the weaker partner. I think what he's saying here is that in the power dynamic, they are the people who are vulnerable. He's not saying that women in general are weaker. Often they are much more clever and much stronger in the relationship with my wife. As you all know, (laughs) she is much, much the stronger partner. But in Peter's day, women were vulnerable. And what Peter is saying to those in power is, consider this situation. You have power. So, look out for these others. In our day, we have had problems just recently with racism. It's come to the fore. We know it is a problem. It is systemic within our society. And for those to say, well, there is no problem here, that we're all equals, all lives matter, is not to consider that there are certain people who are vulnerable in this situation. Peter is saying in this situation, consider you who are white and privileged You have power. So be considerate. And the other person within that dynamic, see them as someone who has an equal share in the kingdom as you do. And finally, he ends by saying, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Those of us who have power and do not consider the other partner in that relationship, and who do not see them as equal heirs, we compromise our relationship with God and our prayers might be hindered. Radical stuff. But when you you read it at first sight, he's saying that women are weaker. That's not what Peter is saying here, at least in, in my mind. So we turn to our prayers. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that though we are just as affected by the waves of time and tide as everyone else, we have you. You are the rock on which we can stand. You are the one in whom Christ entrusted his life. Though he saw the darkest night, he also saw the dawn of Easter day. Because we believe in him, we are his Easter people. We believe that resurrection is possible. And we believe it not just for ourselves, but for our whole world. So this morning we bring to you a world that often sees dark days. 
we remember before you friends in Tanzania who have lost a house to fire. We remember Brad's family and friends who are grieving his loss. We remember a migrant family lost at sea this last week. We remember those killed and those terrorized in France. We remember those who have lost homes and loved ones in the earthquake in Turkey. We remember communities devastated by war in Armenia and Azerbaijan. And we remember our world and nation reeling from yet more bad news concerning this coronavirus. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord God, bring your redemption to each and every one of these situations. Even in the midst of tragedy, give your hope. Reveal in a special way your plans to prosper. Your plans to give a dawn after darkness. Help us, Lord, to hold on to you. We lift these prayers to you in, in the name of our one Savior and Lord even Jesus Christ. Amen.